0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. While they're drawing a picture of an image that I just gave them, I gave them one word and I'm asking them to draw. And while they're drawing that, our lovely contestants here, I want to introduce our passage this morning. We're going to have an exciting time together. We're going to look at Acts chapter six, the rest of Acts six and all of Acts chapter seven. We're going to study the life of Stephen. Stephen in the New Testament is the individual that is martyred for his faith, the very first recording of of a martyrdom in church history. And it's found right in our text this morning as we continue our series moving forward through Holy Spirit living through the book of Acts. The the, the story this morning is about how to start a mass movement. Um, talking about Stephen, the first martyr of the church, his death became the catalyst for a mass movement that caused Christianity literally to spread like wildfire. I've been reading a book this week called True Believer. It's written by a guy named Eric Hoffer, self-educated, written in 1951. uh, And he had several jobs during his life, but he was a reader. And he wrote a book outlined, describing what it is that um, uh, causes an individual to become a true believer of any movement, a mass movement. And he studied the Bolshevik Revolution, and he studied movements in China, revolutions, and world wars. And he said, here are the main characteristics. And this is what it takes to be part of this grand movement uh, in any time period, in any frame. Now, what is a movement? Let's talk about a movement for a second. A movement is an organized effort by a large number of people, especially those not forming part of the elite of any given society, to bring about pervasive changes in existing social, economic, and political institutions, often characterized by charismatic leadership. That's what a mass movement is. It's, a, it's not typically the elite, but it's a group of people that are, are dissatisfied, disenfranchised, on the edges of society, that desire a, a, a preferred future better than the one they have, and it's all crystallized by a charismatic leader. It sure sounds like our text this morning. And so we're going to read our text this morning and talk a little bit about what it means to be part of a mass movement and how Stephen got this mass movement going in our text today. And so take a look at Acts chapter 6 with me. In verse 8, we, we learn now of Stephen, who is chosen as a servant of the church in the early part of Acts 6, we've already studied that passage. And now we're going to move into Stephen's role, not as a serving of tables, a servant, but now a prophetic leader. Now notice where he is. He's on front, he's on stage, in front and center. And it says that Stephen, notice the characteristics of Stephen, full of grace, power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of freedom, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicily and Asia, rose up against and argued with Stephen. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. It says that they put a false witness against him who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like a face of an angel. And then in chapter 7, Stephen makes his case. He defends himself by giving them a history lesson of the entire Old Testament. That's chapter 7, beginning with Abraham and the call of Abraham, that God had called Abraham to become a people for his own sake. And he called him out of Chalcedon and to move into this, this area that was, was, was Canaan that would later become Israel. And then Stephen turns his attention towards Moses And Moses, the great deliverer, the people were now in in slavery. They were were bound up. They were not able to come, come back to their promised land in Canaan. But they were in Egypt. And Moses was the deliverer who redeemed them and gave them their salvation. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? So he tells the story through the eyes of Abraham, who moves out of his place of comfort to start this movement. And then Moses, the deliverer of the movement, to lead the people back into. And then Stephen says, and this is the one whom you were disobedient to. He now looks to them and he says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. and Ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit in verse 51 of chapter seven. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who receive the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently, into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus normally sits. He's now standing. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who's that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. This is the story of Stephen. And I believe Stephen is the catalyst for this mass movement. And we're going to learn some characteristics of Stephen's life. But let's first turn to our unbelievable drawings. How about that, huh? What do you see in these drawings? What do you guys see? Now that you've heard the passage... And now that you have three individuals drawing something, you don't even know what they were supposed to draw. What do you hear? What do you hear? What do you see? What do you see? You see sin and death. Okay, what else? I see joy on that face. Joy. Interesting. I'm happy that I can convey joy. Joy. There is a sword in that man's or individual's chest, and you see joy. Interesting. That's amazing. Uh, Yes. Joy on that man's face. Face. Yes, exactly. That's my point. You see joy in that, where we might look at that and go, "What a loss! What a horrible thing!" And yet, there's Steve sees some joy in that man's face or that individual's face. Excellent. Can I ask the artist? Is that a smile? Um, You know was really interesting. Can I say the word? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I should have probably read my email, but it was
1: great because it was innocently. I just thought of Stephen, mm. so I when I think of my, mm. I thought of Stephen, so I.
0: Wow. There you go.
1: I couldn't. I thought of that. There's a
0: balance. Yeah. Suffered, but there's a point. Where there's there's a, a peace. there's a peace on his face. The joy. There's a peace. There is. Yes. Okay. How about Abby's? What do you guys see in Abby's picture? Love. What do you see? Love. You see that. And what's love up against? It's up against the cross. What does the cross represent? Yeah, it represents Jesus ultimately, right? But it does, doesn't it? The cross represents sacrifice and suffering. The cross is not a beautiful thing. It wasn't in the first century. It was, it was, it was a way to torture people to death. People that lost all privileges in society were sentenced to die. They became owner they became owned by the state they lost their humanity and in that moment they were shamefully put on a cross and yet Abby draws it with a heart interesting okay what's going on over here with patricks what do you guys see party okay what else do you see party lots of spectators and what do you see on the hill cross okay what else Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're seeing you're, what do you see? What are those people doing? What are they doing there? They're spectating. They might be crying. They're wondering, why? What a waste. What is this man doing on a cross? Why are these three crosses on a hill? Who are the individuals on the cross? What else do you see? Pardon me. What's, they might be me mocking exactly i see like intensity in the clouds yeah yeah you so just a emotion yeah, yeah. yeah just the good good excellent did you is that why you drew those clouds or just because you it, needed
1: it, it is and and, as, and the, the people for me i just sort of felt at the same time i felt that they were all, they were spectators and they were mourning but they were also people who were unified in one single interesting. focus interesting i sort of felt that that that, that 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 to me that felt like a yeah. martyr. somebody who was willing yeah. to go to that extreme so that everybody could fall in, yeah. in sync.
0: So a g- gathering, a gathering yeah, place, and a, sure. and a good. And Abby, why? Why do you, we? We need to know why you drew this because we didn't get to hear from you.
2: Um, well, because when I think of martyrdom and sacrifice, I the first thing I think of is Jesus. Mm. And um, but it wasn't just sacrifice it was that he did it out of love so mm-hmm. that's why I
0: yeah said, Go good all right let's give a round of applause james come on up thank you all heather's not done yes one more step here with my oh yes please um this is the cross basically oh the cross as
1: a sort because sometimes we we suffer at the cross so so that's part of it so even though he wasn't really taking up your cross his faith. Yeah. And then I wanted to show that sometimes it's lonely. There's nobody Yeah.
0: Happens. And what's all this down so here? That's blood. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. All right. Okay. Here we go. Thank you. James, tell us a little bit about martyrdom in the first century.
1: Well, you you just got the beautiful artistic presentation. I'm going to give you the boring historical context. Um, so all I want to talk about in the next three minutes is, is exactly that, the historical realities that lie behind uh, these martyr texts that we read. And I study martyr texts, and I think, Heather, that's actually a perfect depiction Mm. when we look at texts that arise from the first, second, and third century that become wildly popular in the Mm. fourth, fifth, and sixth century church. Those martyr texts, they are consistently depicting the martyrs as in this place of complete repose and peace. Mm. And even painlessness. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. So check those you're texts out. Us, but what's the reality on the ground? Here, here's you're the deal. Thing. So let's just say you close your eyes, you open them, you're in the first century, and you have committed yourself to being a follower of Jesus. You have now joined not a mass movement, an extreme minority movement. One out of every 10,000 people in the empire by the end of the first century was probably a follower of Jesus. So most people, 0.01% or 0.1%, would have been followers of Jesus. You were new, which the Romans were like your grandfather that wants Christmas exactly the same way every year, like super traditional. (laughs) They were the most staunch traditionalists you can imagine. So any new movement, especially a new movement with someone they crucified at the center of it is going to make you already strange and suspicious and weird. So that's already strike two for you. Not strike two, it's just the reality of your life. People don't quite know what you are and what you believe. You meet together in houses. There was no churches until the 4th century. It was all in houses. And at those, in those houses, you would do things like eat body and drink blood. Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on in those houses? Of course, we're thinking about the Lord's Supper. This is my body given to feed. This is my blood. But those kind of stories, like, what are they doing there? My neighbor heard a m- meeting of theirs, and they were talking about cannibalism. And you call people brother and sister. You use sibling terminology in the churches. This was scandalous because you only in that context would use sibling terminology for your actual bloodline relatives. It would be shameful to step outside of that and use it for someone who's not in your bloodline. It would be considered a slap in your family's face. It could be considered that. So now you've got some family problems, right? At family dinner, hey, what are you doing with this weird Eastern sect that worships this Jewish Messiah who was crucified Mm. by our Romans? What are you doing there? So this is another problem for you. But the reality was, in terms of statewide persecution or your expectation of being physically harmed, it was most people were not and did not experience actual physical persecution. Though, and this is what I think is important to keep in mind, there was nothing stopping it from happening at any nothing stopping it from happening at any time. You had no protections. Okay, so for example, in Rome in 64 AD, there was a giant fire. And Nero was the emperor at the time. Suspicions were rising that he started the fire. So he goes, hey, there is a group of people that most people think are obstinate and stubborn and kind of misanthropic. That means they don't like people, in his mind, the mm-hmm. Christians. So he pinned it on them, and he made a spectacle of them being killed and crucified and burned and eaten by animals. Okay, So it was terrible. But that was a, an exception until about the 3rd century AD when there were actual empire-wide persecutions And those were because, and this is the main thing, and I'll I'll shut up after this. Here's the main problem with you Christians. There's a good thing to hear on Sunday morning. Here's the main problem with you Christians. From the Roman perspective, there is no separation of church and state at all. That's a a modern uh, notion. It's an enlightenment notion. There was nothing like that. Mm. So when we think about Fourth of July celebrations, or we think about the national anthem, which, right, we've been talking a lot about the national anthem. And not participating in it has brought a lot of conversation. Oh, what's going on here? Mm. Well, you as a follower of Jesus, when there was any kind of patriotic display, it involved both saying, I'm a Roman, and it involved worshiping Dea Roma, the Roman goddess, and it involved in many provinces worshiping the emperor. So you suddenly go, I can't really do this pledge allegiance thing. I can't really sing the national anthem of Rome because I have one allegiance to Christ only. So now something goes wrong, there's economy goes bad, plague hits, something bad happens in your area, people, their first question is always this, who made the gods mad? Mm. And you are a wonderful group to go, oh, yeah, I know some people that they're probably mad at. And so that's the reality on the ground. Good. Boom.
0: Thank you, James. Right on. Thanks for that overview. So rest assured that even in the first century, this was not the... The norm per se at this point, and most certainly in our text here, this is one individual among thousands. And yet, the life of Stephen represents a catalytic opportunity, a, 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 a kind of a turning of the page, a, a, a movement. Something happens, and all of a sudden, now we're beginning to see the church begin to expand and, and move outside of Jerusalem. And into other regions as a result of the ongoing persecution and potential fear of this happening and the difficulties and hardships they, the Christians were facing because they weren't being protected by the state laws per se. And so, what do we learn from his life as we read this text? I wrote a poem. Here's my poem about Stephen. Okay, here you go. James is for you. Stephen, what were you thinking? I want to know. Stephen, full of grace and wisdom, why were you so willing to die for Jesus? Stephen, full of signs and wonders, what would be worth living for? Stephen, full of compassion and forgiveness, did you know it would cost your life? Tell me your story, I'm all ears. I really wonder, I wonder about Stephen. I'm wondering what was in his own frame of thinking, what was in his psyche. Why would he do this? Why would he demonstrate this level of courage and boldness to stand up against opposition and to be put on the front and here's my thought here's as i read the story of the account of his act the accusations made against him and then his defense literally is the old testament and then his willingness to confront their sin and to stand there as they stone him to death i thought of this stephen Sometimes what proceeds you is your greatest contribution in life. Sometimes what proceeds you that maybe God might want to use you as a catalyst in your family or your life or this church or a movement. or Maybe God is calling upon you to have to suffer in some way, and I don't know, and that's a hard message. That's a difficult message. This is not three steps to getting better. This is a story about potentially God may turn what's going on in your life for something even better. And what precedes you as a person will even be greater. Because let me give you an let me give you the answer. Luke, or excuse me, Luke puts it right here. Acts chapter 7, hidden in the text in verse 58, is which individual? Luke 7, 58. They dropped, it says there. They laid aside their robes so that they might pick up the stones to stone Stephen. And who did they lay their robes at the feet of? A young man, Saul. And we know in a couple chapters here, in Acts chapter 9, he is going to run straight into Jesus. And his heart is going to be changed. And he will light the world on fire. We talk about the Apostle Paul all the time. And there he is standing, watching this man go to his death. Sometimes what precedes you is your greatest contribution. And somebody is coming out of that or some movement is going to happen in your life as a result of your <laughs> willingness to do three things. And here they are. Here are the three things. Number one, get yourself in trouble. But you never thought anybody would ever say that in church. But I love saying that in church. I'm going to say it again. Go out and get yourself in trouble in some way. Go get in trouble. Now, you obviously know I don't mean bad trouble you know I don't mean go out there and be a jerk or do something mean to somebody else or be antagonistic or whatever it else. Be like Jesus, be like Stephen, full of grace. He was full of grace. You know what the word grace means? It means charm. Stephen had a spiritual charm about him. And I'll tell you what, when you lead with grace, it's offensive. People don't like that. They don't like forgiveness. They don't like people full of grace. They want, they want to see people get even. We don't like the people that people are taken advantage of. We don't understand that. And when you go out and get yourself in trouble because you're full of spiritual charm, and it says that your life is about signs and wonders, you're just praying all the time, I mean, we're praying over all sorts of people in our church, and there's several here, and I know Brian's back there, and Sharon, and Kurt, and we've been praying for you guys. We're praying for total healing, and we're, we're seeing Kurt Negrinelli here after several weeks of an infection in his leg, and he's, he's here today, and we're just, we're continuing to pray, and Sharon, we're praying for you. We really are. We're praying for full healing. We know you've been through your surgery. Here you are, and we are just confident, and Brian as well. And we're just believing God for miracles, not just in healing, but in changed lives, in marriages, in relationships, in every area. Are we, is that the kind, go get yourself in trouble by going and praying and calling upon God for miracles and believing God for that. And then it also says, thank you, I will. It also says he was full of wisdom. Doesn't it say he was full of wisdom? A wisdom that they could not cope with. They, They were jealous of it. I mean, when's the last time you used God's wisdom in a conversation? You know, I know you're struggling in your marriage, but God's word says that he formed us as one flesh. And this is a spiritual union. We need to own that. We need to honor that. I mean, that's going to get yourself in trouble. I mean, when you start standing up for God's word, I wrote down something else about that. I said, what if you were to talk about finances? You said, you know, I know you're struggling, but God says, honor me with the first of your produce. And then I will open up the heavens with the blessings. And sometimes we don't experience blessings until we're willing first to trust Him with our finances and to honor Him and to take this first step by honoring Him with the first of our produce, the first of our earnings. There's something about that. It's hard, it's difficult. And and the reason why we do that is because we know that God has these blessings, and it's like this gigantic thing of balloons. You know how they do that in like a big convention center, and they've got a string, and the string's ready to, once you pull it, the, the, the canvas opens up and the balloons just come down. Well, the balloons are up there, and they're not coming down until we're on to the Lord. I mean, that's God's wisdom. I wrote down, the Bible says, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Maybe in this relationship. See, you're providing wisdom. That's going to get you in trouble. I was always leaving the first service. A guy comes up to me. It's the second time in our church. And he goes, I think I'm going to go home and get myself into trouble. I said, well, how are you going to do it? He says, we're in college app season, and everybody's focused on their own thing. And there's a lot of stress. And I'm going to say, family, we need to be a family. Even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of stress, even in the midst of fear of where you're going to go to college, we still need to be a family. We're going to honor that, and we're going to have dinner together. And I thought, you're going to get in trouble for that one. There's no question. See, that's the kind of person Stephen was. He got himself into trouble. And it says that the synagogue of the freed men, these were freed slaves that were now in part of a synagogue. They were the ones that brought an accusation against him. It was a false accusation. We we understand that. It was a false accusation. There's opposition that built. The second thing is that he stood up for what he believed. And I love that. He didn't shrink back at this moment. What did he do? He didn't even defend himself. Do you notice that? He never defended himself. What he did is he said, let me tell you what your Bible says. Let me give you a lesson. Let me school you in your old Old Testament. And I know you know this, Sanhedrin, because that's how you get your job. But let me tell you the story of Abraham. And then let me tell you the story of Moses, the deliverer, the deliverer of the people. It sounds like he's building up for Jesus. Sounds like he's leading right in saying, God's got a redemptive story going here and that's what I'm about is telling that redemptive story. And the question is, are we willing to do that? Tell the redemptive story. When's the last time you saw a movie and you walked away going, that's a picture of a redemptive story or read a novel or a book or read an article and said, there's something redemptive in there. I mean, I'm listening to NPR and I'm hearing the story of of relationships being restored and and, and great during StoryCorps, and, and you, you listen to some great stories of, of estranged family members that have come together and brought forgiveness through, through grace. And, and that's redemptive. I mean, that's telling your story. That's standing up for what you believe, that God is about one large story of redemption in the life of people in our community and this society. And we want to tell that story in so many different ways. And I want to encourage you to do the research, to figure it out. I read in college a couple books. One was um, Paul E. Little. He wrote a book called Know Why You Believe. It's an excellent little book that helped me, as a young believer, understand the basics of my faith so that I would be able to have an intelligent conversation with people. Know Why You Believe, very simple, very easy to read, written for a college student. The, other, the second book I read in college is by Cliff Koneckley. It was a big, tall guy with really long arms and long fingers. And he would go around college campuses, and he would gather a large crowd of college students, and he would say, give me an answer. Throw me a question, and I'll give you an answer. And someone would say, how come there's pain and suffering in the world? And he'd get down, in his, he'd get down like this, and he'd go, that's a great question. <laughs> and he'd hold this position just like that, with his long finger and he'd go on and he'd explain exactly what he believed about why God allows pain and suffering or why good intentions is not enough. Good intentions will not help you at the end of your life, that there needs to be some other foundation of your faith, something that you believe in. And he'd say, that's a great question. Let me give you an answer. And he wrote a book called Give Me an Answer, and it's literally all of his little mini speeches that he went around the college campus giving Started in a bar, ended up in, on the college campuses, and it, it helped me understand that. Now, fast forward, I'm in Janie Calvert's living room. Love this story because Janie told me that, uh, that the gentleman that came to give his story in this little gathering in her apartment uh, relayed back to her our conversation after he shared his life story. This is one of the men. This is actually Peter Altman. He is, the fa- he is the son of Maria Altman, the woman that helped bring the woman in gold back to America. It was in Austria. It was stolen by the Nazis during the Third Reich. It was a beautiful painting by Klimt. It's a gorgeous painting of Maria Altman's aunt. And it was stolen. And there it was in the Austrian um, archives... In the museum, and Maria Altman began to petition the courts in America and find. You, you've heard the story of the woman in gold. It's a remarkable story. It's a story of redemption. It's the story of of perseverance of restoring something of value back to a family. and And the painting was finally brought back to America, and now it's in New York at the Neue Museum. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful painting. And yet Peter tells the story of his family and the history of of his Jewish roots and, and what it was like and and the whole story of how she, his mother was able to recover this painting for, for the family and and at the end he said, You're a pastor. Let's talk about that. I've got several questions and I've never been able to get answers for it. I said, well great. Well let's talk about it. And well well and then I would he'd ask me a question and then I would say, well, here's something I would think about. This is something that I, I've considered. And I didn't word it in such a way that you're wrong and I'm right. But I wanted to keep the door open for conversation. And Janie said, as he left, he texted and said, that's the first time I've really had a conversation with someone that I felt like I wasn't judged. They were very open, and it was very clear, and I felt like I got some real answers to think about. That's what we need to be doing. I was so appreciative of getting that feedback that that that's the kind of, of approach of how to stand up for what you believe that I think we need to take. And in the moment, you're thinking, well, I could not possibly answer someone's question about Christianity. Luke 21.15, I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. You open your mouth, and God begins to flood it with wisdom, his wisdom. If you trust him, if you believe in him. Now, it doesn't discount a little study. It doesn't discount a little preparation. But you know a lot. You've heard a lot of sermons stand up for what you believe. There are times and opportunities. So I'm t- telling the story, and another guy walks up to me at the beach and goes, I did that. I just did that last week on the golf course. This guy said, you know, I really need to think what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I said, well, what are you doing now? He says, what am you doing now? He says, well, I'm doing this, this, and this. And then he says this. It was brilliant. He says, well, maybe you need to think about doing something different. Just like that. And the guy goes, huh. Well, let's get together and talk about that. That's developing the conversation. Without closing the door, that's opening the door and saying, let's get together and talk about that. Maybe there's some other options. Have you explored your faith, what you believe in? Third thing that I find this text that I love is the last section in 54 when they heard this. They were cut to the quick. Being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Stephen, now knowing that his death is imminent, sees the glory of God, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing. Jesus is standing. When we are in a place of offering ourselves as a sacrifice, third thing, live like a martyr. And when you decide to, and I didn't say die like a martyr, because I'm not sure whether God wants you to die. I don't know when he's going to have you die. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know whether you will ever have to die as a martyr, but you can live like a martyr. You live because that's about sacrifice. It's about willing to sacrifice whatever it is in your life that's holding you back. And when that happens, guess what? Jesus stands on his feet. He stands on his feet for one thing and one thing only. Our willingness to sacrifice for him. How about that? He is sitting down on the right hand of God and he gets up off his feet in the heavenlies stands and he is applauding us, saying, I see that sacrifice. I see your willingness to be martyred in a way of sacrifice for the cause. And here's the question. What does that look like today? You and I may never have to be martyred. We live in a country where we are not persecuted that way, but we have other challenges. Believe me, we do. And to live like a martyr means you need to identify what martyrdom is in America. Let's take a look at this video by Ron Boyd McMillan to see if we can get an answer. It's a minute and 39 seconds long. And as they're queuing that up, in my book, True Believer, talking about mass movements, he makes a comment about martyrdom. He says, one of the factors that promotes self-sacrifice, a key ingredient to any mass movement, is that we are less ready to die for what we have or are than what we wish to have and become. It's a desired future. See, we're not willing to die for what we have. We're willing to die or sacrifice for what we get, what we'll become. 1 Corinthians, and he quotes, he's not, this is not a faith-based book, he quotes 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight, and he says, the things that are not are indeed mightier than the things that are. One of the key characteristics of mass movement is understanding that there is a preferred future that is better. And when you understand that there is a f- preferred future that is better than what you have right now, you will be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for that. That's a true believer in according to this particular book. How are we doing? Are we able to replay that, that video? Is it, is it going to happen? Is it on the computer up there? You got to see this. It's just too good. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Welcome. (laughs) I'm so glad you joined us. I'm glad you're here at the River Church. No, that's not what he's saying. But this is a good friend of mine, Ron Boyd McMillan. He has spent over 27 years working with the persecuted churches around the world. He's a chief strategist for Open Doors International that tracks persecution in the world today and has uh, incredible knowledge and experience of what it means to be Living in a place where you sacrifice literally everything you have for the sake of the gospel. And uh, this is what Ron uh, one of his many little kind of
2: thoughts and he put he them together. In called Morgan, and he said, remember, the devil's second best tactic is persecution. His best tactic for killing the church is materialism. I once heard a great Chinese leader, Li Chen, talk about this. He said, imagine the devil comes to you with a gun, puts it to your temple and says, deny Christ or I'll pull the trigger. He says, nine times out of ten, you'll say to the devil, go ahead, pull the trigger. You get the strength in a situation like that. So the devil gets up. He takes you to this huge warehouse. Christ is sitting there. He says, you win, you can have Christ. But also in the warehouse are all these beautiful things a lovely house, children, chocolate, whatever, the good things in life. Not necessarily wrong. The devil says, there's Christ, enjoy him, and all these other things as well. I think that's lovely. But then, he says, you find that you're so absorbed in the enjoyment of those things that you don't even realize that Christ has left the room." That's the danger. It is. power to destroy.
0: And maybe here's, here, maybe here's the question for us. What is that sacrifice? What is that thing that is keeping us from um, joining or being a part of or instigating something greater? And it may be what we own it may be what it may be the devil's plan in America because we are surrounded by so much and the more we have the less we need of God our materialistic culture has become has literally come between God and us rather than being a bridge used to bring others to God there's a big difference so if you want to join me this morning in prayer we're going to just have a time of prayer let's pray that God, would make us, that God would make us strong and bold, to get in trouble, to get in trouble for him, that he would also enable us to stand firm for what we believe and also to live a martyr's life, to give up whatever it is in your life this morning that's keeping you from a preferred future that is far better. And it may start in your marriage, it may start in your home, it might be right here in this church, and maybe that you are I'm looking out at the future leaders of our church or the ministries of our church, or as we've been talking about expanding. I've just We've been talking a lot about expanding, and we don't know how and when or what, and I'm just throwing out ideas, and, and, and yet I'm not being careless. I know God's called us to move forward, and that's where we're going, and it's going to take an army of people that have these three qualities. So let's pray. So God, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, inspiring us by your word, by the spoken word, by, Father, just images on the stage, by interaction and discussion. Thank you, Father, that you have been invited in, Holy Spirit, to our meeting, and that, God, you are at work in a mighty, powerful way of bringing about change in our own hearts. It begins with us. We know that, Lord. It begins with us. So this morning, I know, I know there's some of us here this morning that are ready for change. We are ready, and we're gonna make it, we're gonna make some effort this week. And I just want you to think of that. What it is? What are those steps that you're gonna take? How are you gonna get yourself in trouble? How are you gonna get stronger in standing up for your faith and? And how are you going to deal with the things that may be more important to you than your affection for Christ? Hand that over to the Lord now.